This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. This is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And today I'm here with Maxwell Bogue. Hey, everyone. Lovely to be here as always. All right. Great, Max. And Max and I are joined today uh, by Ty Pollock. And uh, Ty has spent a long time working for the U.S. Air Force, uh, teaching Naval Postgraduate School, working at the Air Air Force Material Command and the Air Force Research Laboratory. And for the last couple of years, we've been working at the Universal Technology Corporation. uh, And that's a technology company that has developed something called Open Additive. And we're here today to speak to Ty about Open Additive. Welcome to the show, Ty. Hey, good morning, gentlemen and uh, listeners out there. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So what is Open Additive? A few years ago, we had the ambition to uh, to basically take what we were doing in the research environment. So we, we, we were doing a lot of research on uh, advanced sensing, processing techniques, all around metal additive manufacturing for our uh, primarily aerospace and defense customers at Universal Technology. And we had the idea that, hey, the, the way we can best get this to market is to have our own systems that we can put these technologies on and deliver solutions to our customers. So over the last couple of years, we've been developing these uh, open architecture platforms, uh, both ourselves and with with our uh, collaborators, uh, chief amongst those University of Dayton Research Institute. And in the uh, 2018, we delivered our first uh, open architecture laser powder bed system to NASA under uh, one of our contracts. And, uh, and then in 2019, delivered the first set of systems to uh, community colleges and, and universities and research institutes. And uh, now we've spun out as a company and, and we're, we're venturing off as a OEM of laser powder bed systems and sensors and associated technologies. And let's see where this ride goes. How many uh, printers would you say you guys have made um, so far or can you say? So built, we, we, we are in uh, double digits, uh, delivered as universal technology. Uh, we delivered five systems uh, and we are now as open additive LLC uh, de- uh, taking orders for our first systems. Uh, and those will be delivered this spring. Oh, so. wow. That's great. And uh, so if we, we were all familiar with like the AOS and uh, or AOS, metal systems, and other similar companies, 3D systems have metal printers. So, yeah, these printers are, you know, they're, they're, they're very much kind of like, yeah, a box with a lot of options on it already compared to a lot of industrial equipment. Why would somebody buy, like, instead of getting an M290 or something similar, why would they buy an open additive machine? What's the difference in the type of user or what they're going to do with it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, the, the approach that we're taking is, you know, we're, we're not – displacing all, all, all of the, the the others by any means. Uh, there, there is a niche there for the kinds of systems that we're developing. And really the customers that, that are our are, are prime targets, certainly to start, is the R&D community. So the R&D community is looking for a little more open systems, uh, the ability to integrate some of their own technology that they're developing uh, in terms of the software and the parameter sets, uh, full functionality and the ability to control the tool path. Uh, in ways that 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 are uh, restricted on on some of the other industrial platforms, but I think in terms of our philosophy and what we're we're trying to do, uh, 
if, if you look at the way that the, the, the metal AM market has evolved, and it's, it's a, been a long evolution, uh, you know, the, the metal AM systems have been, have been on the market. U.S. debuted the first system in 1995. So we're, we're now getting into 25 years of metal additive systems out there. Um, what we're doing as open additive is, is trying to accelerate that innovation cycle so that the customers are not as beholden on the, the manufacturers to release the next model with the next capability, uh, but have a little more direct say in terms of what that system would look like. So in that sense, it's a, it's a more customized system. Uh, we can do some, some things that are pretty quickly right out of the R&D lab into a system uh, to deliver a solution for a customer. So that's kind of the set that we're looking at. And then on the uh, more of the industrial user, the machine shop, or even the, the, the community college that's doing training, just that affordability and openness is, is really the, uh, the differentiator we're going for. How much does how much do they run for, or you're hoping to have them run for? So our basic system is a what we call the Panda platform. Uh, it is a six inch by six inch by by nine and a half inch uh, build volume that starts at 169, 169,000. Uh, and then we do 11 inch by 11 inch by 12 and a half inch for 199,000. And these are metal printers. Yes, yes, yeah, laser okay. powder. Got yeah. it, laser powder bed printers. And then when you talk about being able to customize solutions, is it almost like you're building a module and then shipping it off to to the people and they're just installing it? Or do you need to take the systems back in-house to modify them? It kind of depends on, on, on what the modification is. The system is designed to be quite modular. So we have an open bay, for instance, for a second laser. We've in, integrated both uh, melting and subtractive lasers into our, our platform for various needs. It has a, a plenty of room on the top for different sensors. Uh, if you want to install sensors, we've designed the uh, spreader assembly with a triple blade type of assembly where you can reconfigure it in different ways for different research needs. It has mounting holes if you want to add sensors to the spreader, you know, whatever that you might want to do uh, in the research environment. But in terms of uh, uh, that modularity and how, how you could upgrade it, yes, certainly if, if we deliver a system and you want to add a second laser or change the optics or change the sensing, uh, um, we're totally open to that. And users can do some of that themselves, too, because we're pretty open in terms of our uh, uh, not putting limitations on the users in terms of warranty restrictions and the like. So, But it is a traditional LPA ABS system. So we're seeing all these other new laser-based systems that have like a different type of motion stage that moves the laser, right? Like, But it's actually just a classic. It's like exactly, it works exactly the same way like an EOS system would, right? Or like a DMLS, what we would call a DMLS system would, right? Yep, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, so so the, the basic, you know, guts of the system as it were, it's powder bed assembly, uh, uh, powder powder plate, supply reservoir, uh, similar optics, F-theta lens, Galvo scanner, um, uh -huh. very similar in that respect. Okay, okay, okay. All right, perfect. And so who are the people that are using this? Is it Because if I'm if I'm qualifying a new material, then I want to kind of just in, like make it work on the existing SLM solutions or whatever equipment, right? Or, or are you seeing a lot of material researchers use this for like new high entropy alloys and, and, and things like that? Or who are the people using this? Yes, so so a great example of that is you know we we just uh, partnered with a, with a couple folks on the NSF uh, uh, major research instrumentation proposals. So researchers that are out there that want to create some kind of hybrid systems for their research to gain you know an advantage to go get some funding and do some interesting things with their students. Uh, those are the types of folks that are looking at putting our system into proposals, for instance, 
so that it can be modified in different ways. Uh, we are working with a variety of, you know, powder developers and, and other uh, materials folks that are looking for new materials and really just looking for a robust platform that that's that's uh, they can tinker with. They can play with the parameters in different ways for their materials. They can use our sensors to get some more information off of off of that development. Um, so there's those types of users. And then there's just the folks that, that are that are just looking for a more affordable system that, you know, Particularly for the non-aerospace customers, we get we're getting a lot of interest from uh, folks outside aerospace that are looking at you know hey if I can do a three to one type of investment on a lower cost open architecture platform, that's all I'm really looking to do. I'm, I'm looking to make you know jigs and tooling and uh, inserts and those types of things that I don't necessarily need a million dollar system for. It's really funny because I advocated for a long time like a similar kind of research platform for FDM. Right, so really highly accurate, but then at the same time uh, really open to, to play with, and that have really hasn't happened. But now we have FreeMelt, so FreeMelt is doing exactly what you guys are doing, but for EBM or similar to what you guys are doing. And now you guys are doing the same for for laser uh, powder bed fusion, and uh, I think it's really interesting that that's a development. Let's say, but do you also see people kind of if you want to? Because what I always thought was that such a system would be really great to put it in kind of a line. Right. If we look at just the powder bed fusion or the metal printing generally, the, the post-processing is such a big part of it that you really want to establish a line. Are you seeing things like that as well? Yeah, that, that's actually a, a, a great point because, um, you know, I think there's a certain sort of democratization that's happening in, in the industry. And, and I think powder or, or the, the polymer industry has kind of gone through it where you can get all kinds of different systems to do different stuff, uh, you know printing submarines, you know, or parts for submarines, you know, huge systems if, if necessary. Um, I see the same thing happening in laser powder. We've got some designs uh, in terms of making the system uh, kind of fit more into sort of that factory of the future mindset where you can basically modular lot, modularize the entire process uh, so that, you know, with automation and sensing and, and, and uh, internet of things, uh, technologies really, create a, a uh, you know, it's almost like, uh, I, I like to use the the example of, you know, if you come up with a really great, great baking recipe and you make bread and you want to go scale that, you don't take a bunch of ovens and then, you know, that's how, how you, you skate. That Wonder Bread doesn't have factories full of just single ovens. <laughs> they, they've created these lines where it can go, you know, they got the great recipe, they figured it all out on the oven, but then they, they put it through the line. Uh, I think the same thing's happening and it's going to happen in metal additive where you start to see those solutions for for uh, production runs. Well, let's just hope it's, what I mean, happens isn't what happened to Wonder Bread. What's that? Because Wonder Bread went under. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> but they had a good run, didn't they? They did. They had quite a good <laughs> run. <laughs> really? No more Wonder Bread? Oh, my God. Someone so, bought the, the rights to it. <laughs> Oh. It. But, but uh, I, only, I only know this because they were they had a, a baking facility in Massachusetts near where I grew up, and so everyone was like, "Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> so, no more Wonder Bread, no more." Uh, but I think uh, I think that's really interesting because because the thing is like on post like you make the shape essentially on the the, the printer, but if we look at, at uh, how that you know afterwards a post processing step you need to hip it CNC it maybe. Uh, precipitation hardened, whatever you need. Like there's some steps, and if you go to a metal printing factory, often there's a guy taking these parts from station to station. And so if we're looking at really manufacturing, then yeah, that kind of stuff has to kind of, you know, end up being a lot more automated, in my opinion. 
Oh, I agree. I agree. And, and Additive Industries is an example of a company that's doing a very good job of, of trying to create solutions along those lines. Yeah, totally. They've got it all modular in this in one yeah one big system. Let's say. I think we'll see more of that where where, where there, there's a, and this is where again the users have will have a lot more say into what what that solution will look like. And I think you'll see more engineering type companies again as this becomes a little more democratized. It's just hey, this is just a process. There's there's nothing that's uh, you know that special about the box. It's just a box. Mm-hmm. It's just a process, and, and and that process can be applied in all kinds of different ways depending on the application. No, I agree, but I think I think it's also, but it's yes, it's just a box. But I think the box has been quite a limiting in the types of things that we can do with it. If we look at like, for example, the Avio Aero case, uh, where Avio Aero now part of GE, they wanted to make turbine blades uh, on EBM equipment. That was just totally not possible in the, in the current equipment. And nobody, when they first started wanting to do that, everybody thought that it was ridiculous, that you could never use EBM for like an aerospace application because it was too rough and not dense enough and all this. Uh, but, you know, with some investment by Arcam and, and also by, by Avia Aero, they, they made this happen because they looked at the process as a, in its entirety. And I think that's a really exciting thing to, for to people to look beyond the box uh, in the sense that looking at the entire process from start to finish, from idea to part. Yep. T- totally agree. Totally agree. What I'm interested in is like you worked in like nanotechnology and acquisitions and developing technologies for the Air Force. Like you have a really broad scala of technologies to to choose from if you wanted to start your own business. Um, so why why yeah why additive manufacturing? Why is that? Why is 3D printing like of the, all the different hype areas you could go into? Why is this so fundamental to you? Yeah, it's, it, I think additive is becoming the refuge the refuge of the former nano folks. Uh. <laughs> as cycles go, but uh, at least at our lab, we've got quite a few people that, that have had some nano experience. But uh, no, I, I think, you know, technologies change, trends change. I I've, I, I did spend uh, 20 years as an Air Force officer uh, in various science and technology positions and engineering uh, for most of that career. Um, over the last half of that career, I was in material science, so at the Air Force Research Lab, and then uh, after after teaching at the Naval Postgraduate School, where we advised student projects in nanotechnology, I led uh, the Air Force Office of Scientific Research's uh, London operation, looking at materials and nanotechnology across Europe, the former Soviet states, Africa, uh, was really my domain. And I got there in uh, 2010, and you know I, I didn't have a lot of exposure to additive. I had some, uh, but but not a lot. And then basically in the travels. Of, of being a technology scout for the Air Force and seeing where, what's changing and what's game changing out there, uh, recognizing how additive, and particularly Europe at the time in, in additive, was really changing the, the means of production and, and how the Air Force is going to have to get more involved in that. So I actually launched the first uh, international initiative for, for uh, DOD in additive, um, got some funding to, to get some projects going in, in Switzerland and the UK connect some of those leading researchers with uh, uh, some of some of the uh, Department of Defense research community. And then uh, when I got out and uh, joined Universal Technology and, and sort of led some of the material science programs for that company, particularly for our defense customers, uh, you know, additive was just gr- a, a growing space that, that, that there was there was opportunity in. We had some acquisition work uh, where we acquired a small business that had had some additive work. We were we had some other additive going on. We put it together and said, "Hey, we, 
there is a need here that we can put these ideas together and go after um, and differentiate ourselves. And, and that's kind of how we got down that route. And, and do you think, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you have a, def- a background in defense. I mean, if we look at aerospace specifically, we're always looking at, you know, looking at reduction in part count, um, geometries that, that we can't make, shorter development times, more iterations. Uh, those are typically like kind of the advantages or the main advantages for 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 for, for additive. Is there what is specifically so interesting about additive for for three D printing for for the defense community or especially like Air Force and that kind of like uh, these kind of customers? I think part of it is is just you know in aerospace and defense performance. Trumps all. Uh, obviously, cost is, is part of the equation, but you know, particularly on on the military side, you, you know, you, you got to win the fight. Um, so you have to find those opportunities of, of what's going to give you a competitive advantage. So you know, reducing part counts and improving performance, lightweighting structures, those all have a, a clear performance impact. The other part of that impact is on on the supply chain side. Um, you know, if you think about the the Department of Defense and, and all of the parts and the supply chain required to to support the the you know literally millions of pieces of equipment additive provides some opportunity there for for repair and replacement you know we're flying particularly on the air force side you're flying uh aircraft that were built in the 50s and the 60s um so you know thinking about what what does a supply chain look like for an aircraft that's 80 years old you know you really have to have to rethink how you go about uh finding new parts and additive is an attractive way to do that. No, it's a, it's a super easy way to deal with not having to make 10,000 units of something because that's the MOQ on it. <laughs> yeah. And if you look at the Department of Defense, and this is true of all the services, you know, you just don't produce the kind of quantities that they used to. Right. Uh, so you're fielding fleets of aircraft that have, you know, in the case of like a B-2, 20 aircraft were built. Um, there's not a big supply chain there for that, for that uh, weapon system. Right, and then uh, it, also, yeah, absolutely, it doesn't make sense to do certain types of things. Like, you know, you have to cast, for example, you have to make tooling for certain pieces, but you're like, wow, that's a lot of tooling <laughs> for 20 of something. That's yeah. right. Oh, but if you're looking at like, a weapon system like the the B-52, which you referred to, I think that's, uh, that's been, uh, indeed it has been flying for 80 years. I mean, isn't the problem with additives, or like at least isn't the problem with powder bed fusion that a lot of these parts are too big for the build volumes that we're capable of doing now? Or that's absolutely true. Just, that's absolutely true. You know, uh, powder bed fusion is, is one of many technologies uh, that are out there that are going to satisfy the demand. So DED and, and uh, FDM and, and all, all of these technologies have a role to play on those types of, of systems. Yeah, I think everyone is really excited, especially in Europe. You were here, so you, you know what it's like. I mean, in Europe, we're doing, you know, spare parts is like the big driver for a lot of investment, a lot of governmental EU investment as well. Um, so everybody's really excited about like spare parts, and I see us getting caught in the trap of trying to recreate a part made by another technology and then qualify it. Um, and then you know we know that with additive we're going to come up with like more expensive parts, at least initially anyway. So it's 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 a very much uphill struggle. Where I think that additive really shines is you know in parts that are like completely new systems, uh, but also systems that are kind of gradually improved over time. Uh, and what I think is really like underutilizes just this whole idea of, you know, we know that this component is broken, let's redesign it on the system and improve it. 
or we know this component uh, causes problems. Like I, I thought of, like for example, the, the Apache helicopters during the first Gulf War that were, just, uh, you know, top of the battlefield kind of apex predator uh, battle uh, system, and they were just like they had bad filters on them and they clogged with sand, right? So you had a, a a little problem like that. I think additive is really super suited for 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 updating these kind of uh, uh, systems, like on the fly kind of. Agreed, and and that's also where you know sort of that engineering ingenuity can be brought to the fight because you take smart people and then you give them a problem and you they're able to manufacture that solution quickly. There's a lot of problems you can solve that that would be very difficult to solve otherwise. Uh, so yeah, I mean, even even I've, I've got some examples uh, that I'm aware of through some of the work that we've done in the past of, you know, folks in Afghanistan. You got a, a, a mount for for a sniper rifle that is causing problems. They take it back to to a shop, they redesign it, they print it, and all of a sudden now the guy's more effective in the field. So, from something as simple as just handheld weapons to to like an like your example of an Apache. Um, yeah, there, 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 there's an awesome opportunity to use additive to, to quickly field something and then field something that you couldn't manufacture otherwise. Could, could you see a future or an environment in the future where there are some equivalent of a 3D printer uh, at a forward operating base, for example? Or do you think that's that's too far, that it well, should still be back in the shop, so to speak? Oh, no, the, the, the future's already now on that one. So there um, are actually 3D printers at forward operating bases? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, cool! I did not know that. <laughs> so there, are, there are solicitations out there for for getting metal printers in in, in right. locations. Uh, but yeah, there's certainly certainly a variety of other other printing modalities out there. Uh, there's also the ref, right? The public thing I think is that the ref rapid equipment force had this, you know, fab lab in a container project. And that did a lot of the things that uh, you did. Also, I think they did for the saw. They did a swivel mount for the the squad automatic weapon, and they did like these mounts for uh, IED detectors and things like that. So in polymer, and in kind of these fab labs in the field, are already quite far. Uh, but you don't think that the the but you know metal printing is a you know it's a pretty intensive place. I mean, isn't something more to be doing in a country rather than like you know at the forward operating area because that that's that would be you know, wouldn't that be a little bit difficult? It depends. I mean, there, there's layers to, to the logistics chain. Uh, so, you know, just like with, with you know, in, in the medical environment, there's things that you'll do in the field that you, that, that you can't do or, or, or that, that you um, would have to do. At, wouldn't at, want to do. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to do. And you'd have to do it at, at a higher up location. The same, same is true in manufacturing. Uh, there's things that, that you do in a shipping container that, you know, you might reserve for a, a full up machine shop uh, at the base yeah. level. But uh, but there are, the, you know, there are long term bases uh, or at least, you know, long enough term bases that that if you put shipping containers with, with metal additive systems in a base, uh, it wouldn't be that difficult to be up and running. And, and there are plans uh, in the services to do exactly that. Sounds like I think it's really spaces need three doodlers. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> every base needs a three dude. That's right. Every base needs a three uh, <laughs> Sorry, Chris, you, you were about to say something? No, no, it's fine. And in no. fact, and I think, I'll, I'll add one other comment to that. You know, it's 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 not just additive either. It's subtractive as well. So the, the services are, are, yeah. are you know, in putting CNC's, CNC's and, and, and other yeah, things. That makes sense. Well, I think any kind of tool you can give someone to, because to, uh, there's one thing, there's like, 
you're designing uh, a weapon system for a million guys, and then you're that you kind of understand, but you'll never really completely understand. Um, so all this stuff will break, and then break in kind of ways that you didn't anticipate. And up and, and up until now, I think it's up to the, especially in the, the the more the army side, it's more up until the original the the individual soldier to kind of develop their own improvised solution to this. But to do this in a kind of more organized way, for for example, the air force where it's more difficult to kind of like you know with duct tape fix an airplane, um, you know I think that's really a very very exciting thing. Uh, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the you know the idea of becoming you're know, not entering a, a battle with a with a static set of equipment but to upgrade this equipment as you go throughout the the engagement or to even customize a particular set like to customize a drone for example for desert warfare or whatever that to me is also a really completely way that we could change 3d printing the the whole uh defense community yeah i, I agree with that it, it's it, that's one, one reason it's getting a lot of attention do you, and do you think that that's something that, that needs to live more in like on the procurement side? I mean, the the idea that we can like kind of iteratively upgrade our our kit is that something that that, that is something that people are actually thinking about? Or yeah, so so there's been a big push on on the the defense side. You know, of, of course, acquisition reform is, is is sort of a phrase that that never goes away. Um, we're always reforming acquisition, but if you look at uh, some of the new models for acquiring systems and prototypes, you know, going to things like other transaction authorities, uh, which, which allow, allow the Department of Defense to go out and get a solution quickly uh, without using the traditional um, acquisition route. There's a lot more of that additive plays in that as well. Um, so yeah, th that ability to iterate quickly and, and field, you know, best available rather than, you know, waiting until every requirement is met uh, is, is part of the mantra of, of where the Department of Defense is going. Yeah, I think I think that's a really different way of thinking about it than just like a, yeah, just ordering something once and then making do with it for a very very long time. Yeah, for like. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you saw that in the, the Second World War as well. And the Second World War was a time when there was many competing businesses for aircraft systems, and you saw aircraft systems that did not perform were very very, or in many cases, quite quickly ditched, uh, and other aircraft were completely repurposed for different roles and different things like that. And there was like a lot of fluidity in this in this in this uh, kind of uh, procurement process. And now, you know, we take what is it, 20 years to build one aircraft with like four variants, and then you know, it's it's a very very different kind of system. Yeah, and and, and especially as you as you see the the uh, proliferation of unmanned technologies, you know, some of those limitations in terms of of that cycle. A lot of that's because there's a human in a loop and the testing and everything that has to be done. Uh, you take the human out of those systems and you'll be able to feel them a lot faster. And, and that's kind of the model where the services are going. Right. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Like you, you know, you can't replace a human. You can replace yep. a piece of equipment. So. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so more attributable type of aircraft, more attributable type of systems that, that that's definitely on, on the horizon. And additive plays very well in that because, you know, the, the one knock on additive, particularly metal additive is, you know, do you get the same material properties as you get from wrought and forged type of materials for aerospace? Uh, but if you start looking at attributable systems, that becomes less of a concern. Definitely, if you would make them for a particular environment, like for example, if you would make a particular drone that would only be suited for low-flying areas over, I don't know, let's say, uh, very topical Iran, for example, uh, and you know that, that that system is going to be lost, then you only make that kind of semi-low-tech system for that one role, for that one application. And then it starts to really kind of make your, your entire development, I think, a lot more granular. That's right. Uh, rather than trying to find the perfect thing for everything.
and you can fail faster. And I think that's like some paradoxical way. Nobody in the military wants to fail or something. And that makes these things like, I don't take very long, <laughs> or at least that's my take. I don't know anything. I don't know. Why would I, I think that it comes back to that you don't want to fail if a human's involved. <laughs> uh, and do you think that okay? So besides like the Air Force kind of customers, do you, do you also see like we're seeing a lot of LPBF or, uh, or laser powered fusion activity in space for rocket engines for vehicles? Are you seeing that as a market for you guys as well? Yes, certainly. Um, maybe not so much for our systems uh, in terms of our LPBF platforms. They're not being used for those types of applications right now. Uh, but but some of the technologies that we're developing have applicability there. Uh, we, we have funded projects uh, from those types of customers, both ourselves and, and Universal Technology, uh, prior to our spin out as Open Additive. Um, but yeah, laser powder bed is, is increasingly attractive. NASA is pretty much all in on additive. Uh, so a lot of activity going on there. Yeah. I think in space, the, the nice thing about NASA is they publish a lot of stuff and they make it like public, at least to the community, and then in the wider world they do release some stuff. And they've had some like baby Bantam on with Aerojet, but also uh, in their own development, some like really spectacular results where they're seeing, you know, part count reductions from 80 to three. Uh, you know, 40% weight savings on some components. And then again, also like, like going from like eight month development cycles to four months and stuff like that. So they're, I think they're key and also, you know, kind of developing the, cause everybody else keeps the data kind of like a little bit secret, you know? Uh, so I think the key to actually like motivating other people to say, look, this is actually, we actually did this. This is an actual rocket engine or an actual satellite part. It's actually there or an actual, uh, uh, component. And, 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 and here's the data to it. So I think that's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and space is an environment where it's very quick. It's very easy to see that return on investment. If you lightweight by X percent, you know, the the, the dollars that are required to launch a pound are, are you know, in the 10,000 plus. So it, it's very easy to see how, how that calculation works with the advantage of additive. Yeah, also, there's this like one, uh, you've probably seen it. There's this one like NASA presentation where they have like they show in a graphical way or semi-graphical way, like how much replacement parts and how much part loss and stuff has to happen for ISS or how much like of this stuff has to be brought up to ISS. And we're talking about hundreds of kilos of things that have to be brought up. And it's like, so any kind of marginal kind of improvement, there is huge effects going forward. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the maiden space, uh, is a pretty cool initiative that they get going on there and put, putting 3d printers on orbit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, getting them on like the moon and stuff like that too, and Mars would obviously also be amazing because all you have to do is, well, in those locations, theoretically, you could scoop up the material around you, so you don't need to bring the material with you. You just need the machine. That's right. Obviously, a lot more needs to be done to get to that point, but it would be amazing to just take raw material from, from the surface of Mars or the surface of the moon to then build a, a moon base or a Mars base. Yeah, our, our our lead application scientist at Open Additive uh, in a prior company before joining us had a project exactly on those lines of taking Mars regolith and, and extracting the iron from it as potential feedstock. Ooh, oh. that's cool. <laughs> that was more than I was thinking about, but that makes perfect sense. The red planet and all. Yep. Um, <laughs> Is that why it's red? Oh, yeah, because okay. it's iron. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So I think, but you're not pursuing those kind of customers. So besides like air, air, the Air Force, what other customers or applications or areas are you looking at? 
Yeah, so so the way the, we're kind of working at, as the spin out is, you know, we're definitely commercially focused. Uh, we do have we do have government contract work that 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 is, you know, that we'll be starting here soon uh, as open additive. Universal Technology remains a, a company that that's dedicated to to the the aerospace and defense market. So it has a lab that's focused on additive as well, which was kind of our roots. Uh, so it remains kind of focused on that space. Whereas we're really trying to bring these products out to market that have much, you know, much wider applicability, certainly uh, applied to aerospace and defense, but particularly in the R&D side, you know, with the universities, uh, even if you look at all of the community colleges that are going to get into metal additive that aren't there today, are going to need low cost, versatile systems. Your average machine shop, if, if you're a machine shop today and you're not, you don't know anything about additive, you're going to be overcome in five years because your, your competitors are just going to have more tools to solve more problems. Uh, so you see machine shops that, you know, your everyday machine shops all across the country are now looking at additive. And and for them, that return on investment, because they're not going to be talking about high volume production anytime soon. So they need something that's a little more versatile and affordable. And, and we're kind of trying to reach out to those types of customers. So we're, we're really kind of across the gamut. We'll kind of see what, what will stick. But uh you know, it's 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 gonna be very hard to displace some of the 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 larger manufacturers that already have a foothold in aerospace and defense. It takes a while to qualify a system to make a part for a difficult application. But is that really your goal? Yeah, I thought you'd stay in research and stuff. Is that really what you want to do? Kind of move up the the, the chain or? Well, it's it's actually yeah. So it's it's multifaceted in the sense that if we have a platform that sells. We have an ability to put new technology on it for other customers. Um, so we definitely we we have the laser powder bed platform. It's reliable. It's affordable. Uh, it has wide appeal. We're hoping that that gets to market and, and, and makes some kind of dent there. But certainly the the longer term strategy is the ability that what that provides us is a platform to get new technology to market faster so that we can do innovative research. We have an outlet for that research, which is one of the challenges that many small businesses face is they do really innovative things, but they have no way to really get it to a customer because they have to kind of sell somebody else on, on, on integrating that technology into their system. So from our perspective, you know, we are doing innovative research. We are doing some some really cool things that are going to make some some interesting systems and new products down the line. But at the same time, we've got a product now that we think that there's a market niche for. Um, so we yeah we we'd like to to satisfy that that need. There's also another uh, we didn't touch on this before. It's, it's a U.S. system made by a U.S. company, and that's I think uh, in the United States, and that's I think a, a very interesting thing I guess for you, for your type of customer, especially on the defense side. Uh, that could be a very interesting thing for them to consider as well. It certainly can be, and uh, and even even your 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 everyday machine shops, you know, the ability of a group like that to work with somebody that they trust, you know, just almost that. Uh, that sort of hometown customer service goes a long way. And uh, so we see that as an advantage as well. If you're looking at like kind of more future, what, what is your go-to market at the moment? Is, is it just you, you sell directly and you support directly? Is that, is that the, the plan going forward or? That is the current plan. So so we, we do have a full-time sales manager that, that, that uh, manages those interactions. Uh, we've got support, support engineers. Uh, technicians that can go out in the field and service systems. We don't have high volumes right now that that you know that we have to get away from that model. 
We're instituting a referral program so we can have referral partners out there. Um, our you know, we're really looking for select partners, not, you know, it's not everybody, but, but, but a few folks in some key markets that we would partner with that would kind of expand our reach. Um, we're not, you know, we don't have a, a large investment kitty here where we're trying to blitz the market by any means. Uh, we're trying to just get quality products out to market to satisfy uh, real needs and uh, not scale too quickly that we, we can't can't offer that quality in the service. Yeah, there's no there's no crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We're gonna upset the whole market by you know. <laughs> no, yeah. that's not us. That's not us. And do you think that that's uh, I mean, because you're kind of like you're kind of a startup, but you're not fully fully startup -y. you don't speak the whole startup -y lingo like we're going to disrupt everything by tuesday and like hundreds of printers and all you know so you're kind of a startup but not are you enough of a startup do you think uh to tackle this market or do you think being really conservative is a really good thing maybe i think i think for for our model that that conservatism helps uh you know we're not a startup in the sense that you know there there's uh you know, it's 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 a brand new idea. We got some new investors, and we're just gonna go go take take the place by storm. Uh, what it really is is it's an outgrowth of of a, a mature company that that was working in aerospace and defense for a long time, uh, basically managing programs, understands the customer needs, and it's taken that group and now is putting it in a position to go out and solve wider problems. Uh, but at the same time, there's not a uh, there's not a rush to, to, to make this go go viral. Uh, we we want to be able to what, what this really provides the, the, the greater combined company. If you look look at the, you know, the other elements of, of, of UTC and its partners is a lot of credibility in the additive space to go to go work programs and to go to go work with those defense customers and, and industrial partners. Uh, but at the same time, kind of play in the, in the commercial space and diversify the portfolio. You did allude a little bit to like you know future developments and future exciting things. I mean, yeah, are there any particular materials or or, or lasers yeah. or things that you're very excited about or or nano printing stuff? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 pretty exclusive right now on 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 laser powder bed techniques. We we are working on right now a 600 millimeter by 600 millimeter uh, system, so 24 inch by 24 inch platform. Have built that under independent R&D. Uh, have a new project that's a multi-year project that's going to start with a defense customer, uh, basically exploring multi-lasing uh, techniques on that system, integrated sensing and feedback control, uh, integrated uh, bed heating. So that that platform is is really going to be our next sort of product uh, in terms of another class of system that we can, we can customize for different partners. We do have an industrial partner that that's involved in some of that development as well for their for their particular applications. Uh, so the next big thing we're working on is going bigger in, in, in LPBF. Yeah, 60 by 60 by 60 doesn't seem like a really large thing, but I think you could get a lot of really important parts in, in that kind of an envelope. Yeah. Yeah, and at the price points that you guys are talking about, then that's also an attractive thing for metal. So. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there there are there are a lot of lot of uh, lot of customers with a lot of parts that that are beyond say like an EOS M400 16 inch by 16 inch system. Uh, so that that 24 inch by you know the the powder bed itself is actually 24 by 30 inches. Um, it's an attractive attractive uh, next next sizing for us. 
this is really interesting. Actually, I've been involved like as a consultant on how big do we make the printer kind of, uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of, uh, like kind of like, uh, yeah, in the, in the beginning where we try and develop new printers or like try to figure out what the build volume size is. How did you, did you, do you remember how you, you decided on 60 by 60 or these kind of sizes or? Well, this, this, this is 24 by 24, uh, yeah. expandable yeah. to 24 by 30. So it's 600 millimeter, yeah. 600 millimeter. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. uh, yeah, what what drove us to, to, to that size is really that there there were customers that had part part needs in that size. So okay, we built, okay. a, built a system for in in partnership with a customer that that wants to do some applications development at that size. Yeah, usually that's kind of what drives it. It's really funny the the types of things that you can do to try to figure out what the ideal size is for your printer and the amount of math you could throw at that problem and still not know anything. Yeah. <laughs> And you start to get, you know, if you get beyond a meter, you start to get where you're going to need new technologies just because of the volume yeah. of power. Right. I mean, that's it. Yeah. filling the machine is going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars if you get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then I think I think then DD or something like kind of in that area would be probably better suited for that kind of thing anyway. Yeah, and there's Even some novel, at- novel ideas on, on adapting the the build volume. Uh, we've got some of those ideas. I know other other companies have some of those ideas. You can see some of that in the, the IP landscape now. Uh, so mm-hmm. people are thinking beyond just you know the box of uh, in terms yeah. of build volume, but ways to control that build volume. Yeah, like uh, rolling. Oh, okay, maybe put a conveyor belt under it or something like that. Yeah, you don't have to tell me anything. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but yeah, we Se- the segmenting the powder in different ways. Yeah. People okay. are looking at. So I mean, can you fuse parts together with your system? So we have we have submitted a patent application as UTC last year for a system called Recam, which was a rising external chamber for additive, where basically the 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 base plate um, is almost like a roll in roll out box where you could have yeah, a gosh. part and then you just build right off that part in a particular That's dimension. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. there's there's more, and I, I don't think we're the only ones with those ideas. Uh, but yeah, looking at the ways to, to, to put a part in there, build right off the part to, to fuse, yeah. to go bigger. I mean, I've always been interested in metal printing to alter tooling, for example, because I just think that has huge applications or to like bring back old tooling from the dead, so to speak, rather than having to redo an entire set of tooling. Yeah. Um, I'm always fascinated about those possibilities. Yeah, you can do that with, uh, with some, it's already happening, right? With like Yeah, some of the, there are, there are the, some the, systems the... out there that let you do that. Uh, yeah, was it the uh, EBAM or whatever, and uh, and these these spray systems and stuff like that? They're already using it to rejuvenate mold tooling, and blisks and stuff like that. It's from Siaki and Optimec and stuff. So it's already happening, but then they spray it on. But that's a different process. So they spray it on and then subtract it, uh, subtract it back to the the right dimension. That's but, right. Oh, and uh, one thing I'm really excited about is these high entropy alloys, which I don't know anything about. <laughs> right. <laughs> But it's 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 trending. I'm seeing a lot of we publish a lot of research on 3dprint.com, and I'm seeing more and more on these. Okay, so it's an alloy made out of like what four or five different. Right, right. Alloy. Yeah. So so. And it, I, I think that's really exciting. It is. It is. And, and really, the advantage of, of a system like ours for doing HEA research is just that you've got a lot more knobs that you can turn uh, in terms of that process development because th- those are very difficult alloys and. Obviously, the, the 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 compositions, you know, you you're gonna want to look at a, a variety of different uh, uh, processing parameters to narrow down. 
I think, I think it's really interesting, the idea of being able, because what I immediately thought of, like, the idea of being able to make an alloy that is ideally suited for one combustion chamber, for one fuel, for, like, one design of a rocket, that could be, like, complete change how certain things are made. Yeah, a lot of work on the materials development in, in that space. Um be interesting to see what what new materials come to market. Yeah, because interestingly, if you look at like for example the really high performance or what's still now for a lot of people the high, high performance stuff, it's like the Astaloy, like seven eighteen, uh, and all that kind of stuff. That's like decades old already, right? Oh, absolutely. Most yeah. of those materials. Yep. And it's uh, and so we kind of have been at a standstill, and we could because that's why the, the thing that excites me about your machine is that it could accelerate everyone else's development. And we have been at a standstill. We we use TI sixty four for almost everything, uh, and and yeah, and, and and you know it's not we're not really moving as quickly as I think we could be. Yeah, and and if you go back to to even the Obama administration with the Materials Genome Initiative, uh, really kind of focused on 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 that exact problem of how can we take computational modeling and high throughput experimentation and and uh, get material development faster because, like you said, a lot of the materials that we're working with are are it's kind of like the Wrong. devil you know. So, yeah. you know, that's why that's why you use them. <laughs> cool, man. So, uh, and, what, and what are your plans for, for for the business? I mean, where do you want to be? Like, if you're looking five years from now, do you want to be a huge business or just a thriving startup? Or what are your goals? Uh, goal one would still be to be around, uh, which would okay. be nice. That's, uh, a, that's a good goal. <laughs> that's a good goal. Uh, again, with the realism. Yeah. <laughs> You know, to be relevant, you know, I, I don't think we're looking at uh, any any massive growth as, as the metric of success as much as just to be relevant with with having good solutions to to real problems. Um, and, and and we see this space is just, you know, it's not going away. It's going to keep expanding. Um, so that, that's kind of where we're at, just just to, to be a relevant option to to the, the community. And obviously more going into the industrial side because, you, you know, we, we understand that, that those are where, where metal additives going. Uh, it's, you know, we got to be able to take good stuff that's coming out of research, put it into an industrial setting. Uh, so that, that's where we'd like to be. All right. Awesome time. Well, uh, I wish you a lot of luck with that uh, development. I uh, really yeah. love that you came here today to, to tell us all about it. And I really love the kind of the very down-to-earthness and the realistic uh, kind of uh, planning and, and things. So that's a, that sounds really exciting. And, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for, for, for being on the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. This, this has been fun and uh, I really appreciate it. No, likewise. I, I think the truth is we could probably go on for another three hours. <laughs> <laughs> but no but we, we should wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Hey, so, guys, uh, this is the 3D Pod. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and I was here today uh, with Ty Pollock uh, and uh, Maxwell Vogue. And, uh, yeah, we, we hope you really enjoyed the show. And uh, thank you very much for listening to us. And uh, I hope to catch you next time. Thanks. And subscribe and share with your friends. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.